Most families that I know mark significant milestones in their life and in the life of their family members with some kind of a celebration, right? I mean, it starts in our life, like at our first birthday or even when we lose our first tooth. We celebrate that. That's a milestone. It's a different kind of milestone when you lose your last tooth, right? As an adult, as a grandpa, and I don't think we want to mark that. We mark wedding anniversaries, like some couples just It's a milestone, never thought they'd make it to their first anniversary. And then we celebrate big ones like 25th or 50th, or if you're lucky enough and married a patient enough woman, you'll celebrate your 75th wedding anniversary. Birthdays especially are big celebrations, right? There's kind of these, (laughs) I saw some of you shaking your heads, no, that's not going to happen. Birthdays are especially that way, right? Like we celebrate big time in our family, the first birthday uh, of our grandkids, We celebrate 16th birthdays, right? Because what happens on your 16th birthday? You can drive. And so you gain freedom. And at the same time, your parents get the gift of higher insurance costs. We celebrate 18 when you're legally an adult. We celebrate 25 when the car insurance companies recognize that you're legally an adult and a safer driver and you get lower premiums. There's all kinds of stuff we celebrate in life. Most celebrations in life mark the ending of one chapter and the beginning of a new one. And you can always look back on these milestone celebrations to remember and celebrate again. The Bible describes the significance of baptism in much the same way. Baptism is a celebration for it marks the end and a beginning in our spiritual journey. And September 26th, we're going to celebrate baptism as a church for the first time in two years. We are so excited about that. I can't wait. For those of us who've been baptized already, the memory of our baptism stands as a milestone, joyfully, defiantly reminding us that we belong to God. Baptism gives us this tether to our identity as sons and daughters of God, that we are deeply loved and fully forgiven. Baptism enables us to lean into God's goodness and grace, and it gives us that milestone to help us trust God, even when our doubts and fears scream at us, we don't belong. So given the importance that Jesus placed on baptism in his teaching, I think it's good for us periodically just to stop and take another look at this topic. So whether you're here in the room this morning, you're watching live, or you're watching this talk sometime later, I just want us to dig in for a few minutes on the idea of baptism and what it means. If you have any kind of a church background at all, more than likely you have some beliefs and some ideas and opinions about baptism. And if we're honest, most of us, what we believe about baptism simply comes as a byproduct of the traditions we grew up with. For me, I grew up in a very conservative church with a specific set of beliefs about what baptism means. We had very solid beliefs about how a person was to be baptized and when it was supposed to be done. And growing up, my church also made it very clear to anyone who would listen that we were right on these things, and if you believe differently, you're wrong. So if you were raised with strong family beliefs like I was, then you know that discussions about baptism can be emotionally charged. And to consider changing your beliefs about baptism 
Now, that's the same thing as telling your family and all of your friends that they're the ones who are wrong. And yet, over the last 20 years of my life, my beliefs about baptism have changed. They've grown as I've grown. And the most helpful thing for me in that journey is to try to set aside all those preconceived ideas, to try to take the emotion out of it and just simply look at what the Bible has to say and what it doesn't say about baptism. That's what I want us to try to do in this time together. Nearly every church baptizes people, every Protestant church, every Catholic church, but different churches do it in different ways and at different stages of life. Churches everywhere baptize because it's something Jesus asked his followers to do. That much is really clear. Just before Jesus concluded his ministry on earth and returned to heaven, he said this to his followers gathered around him. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, and what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus' command is that wherever people embrace his teaching, they should be baptized. It's an important step we take as Jesus' followers. And the New Testament gives us lots of examples of people obeying this command. That's why Christians everywhere generally agree on this one point, that we should be baptized. And then after that agreement, uh, the opinions branch out and the church traditions branch out in all kinds of directions, and it can leave us confused and asking questions. We encounter something that's different than what we've been taught. So when I think about baptism, one of the first questions I have is this. Where in the world did this idea begin? The logical conclusion would be that Jesus created it. He came up with this as a practice, as a step, as a sacrament, if you will, that his followers were made unique by. Nobody else did it. Jesus created it. That's the way we tend to believe. But that's not actually how it all started. Baptism was around 400 years or so before Jesus was born. Its roots trace back to a practice in the Jewish faith. Non-Jewish people would travel to Israel to visit. Some would move there and live, or they would encounter Jewish, Jewish people who lived around them in the rest of the Roman Empire. And sometimes these people became curious about the Jewish faith. Judaism was unique in many ways from all the religions of its day because it believed that there was only one God, and that flew against the prevailing Greek culture and mythology. So these people got curious, and they checked it out. Some would come to the outer edges of a synagogue or the temple in Jerusalem and attempt to worship like the Jews, but they couldn't fully engage because they weren't born Jewish. Over time, the Jewish religious leaders came up with this process whereby people could convert from Judaism to Judaism from whatever faith they had had. So that people like the non-Jews, Gentiles is what they were called, could become Jewish. And different literature has different lists of the steps in the process, but all of them include some of the basic things that I'll mention now. First, <clears throat> if you're a man, you're going to have to have some surgery. You have to get circumcised. And my guess is that one simple requirement led to a lot more female converts than male to Judaism. Just my opinion. So men, you've got to have 
You've got to get circumcised. Now, a circumcision is... No, I'm not going to describe that this morning. You can relax a little bit. Um, After the circumcision, which was always the first step, then you would participate in one of the covenant meals in the Jewish faith, like the Passover. Beyond that, the steps kind of vary depending on where you are in the world. You might have to memorize large chunks of Scripture. In some cases, you were required to memorize word for word and be able to recite the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Imagine that, memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, being able to quote them end-to-end or start in the middle anywhere and just pick up and quote. You might also be required to offer one of the sacrifices that were common in the Jewish faith, and there were lots of other possible steps. But what, where they all reconverge is in this one single step. The final step to becoming Jewish would be a cer- ceremonial washing that represents a spiritual cleansing. The ceremony said, I'm washing away who I formerly was, a Gentile, and I'm cleansing myself of my old way of life, and now I'm identifying with the God of the Jews. The Greek word they would use to associate that they used associated with the ceremonial washing was baptizo. It is the Greek word which we translate as baptize. Baptizo was a common everyday word. When you did the dishes, you baptizoed them. You plunged them into the water and washed them clean. This was a common everyday word, and baptize eventually gained a special religious connotation. In becoming fully Jewish, Gentiles were baptized as a sign that they were leaving their old way of life behind. So with that 400-year backdrop, we move to the New Testament, and along comes this guy named John in about 30 AD. He was Jesus' cousin, and he preached a very simple, powerful message. He said, you have to repent. You have to change your life because God is about to do something in our world that he has never done before. And if you're not right with God... You're going to miss it. In conjunction with his teaching, John said, if you're ready to change your life, I want you to come down into the water with me and be baptized. And whatever John did at that point, the New Testament doesn't describe how he did baptisms. Whatever he did resembled those ceremonial washings. And so when the Bible writers tried to describe what John was doing, they used that Greek word, baptizo. John did this so much that after a while, his nickname became what? John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Being baptized was a way for people to say, I believe what John is teaching is true. I want to follow his teachings. It was not enough for them to simply stand on the bank of the river and listen to him teach and nod in agreement. They needed to be baptized by John to go public with the fact that they believed in his message. So one day, John is teaching, and he looks up from the water where he's baptizing, and he says, there, over there, standing on the edge of the crowd, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one I've been talking about. So Jesus walks over, gets down in the water with John, and is baptized by John. And I'm convinced that in that moment, the people standing on the bank had no idea the significance of what had just taken place in front of them. 
This was not just a baptism. This was Jesus affirming and agreeing with John's message. This was the launch of Jesus' public ministry. This was the beginning of grace and forgiveness coming for everyone. The Gospel of John says this, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. And over the next three years, people listened to the message of Jesus, and in their heart they would say, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I do believe that he's come from God, and I believe his teachings. And then Jesus and his disciples would baptize them as a public evidence of their newfound faith. So that's the history. Through all of that, through 400-plus years of tradition, baptism became the way that people identified with Jesus and his message. It wasn't a new thing. It wasn't something Jesus created. He simply took a familiar practice and attached a new significance to it. It was a very cool way for people to drive a stake in the ground and say, I believe in what Jesus is teaching. Then just before Jesus left the earth, that verse we read a few minutes ago from Matthew, Jesus said to his followers, now I want you to get out there and I want you to tell everybody everything you can remember about my teaching. And when they subscribe to this way of thinking, when they decide to become my follower, it's not enough that they simply make a decision on the inside. I want to see evidence on the outside. So I want you to baptize them. The simple fact that Jesus began and ended his teaching ministry emphasizing the importance of baptism, that he was personally baptized, gives us a clue that this step is really important in our relationship with God. It's something we need to pay attention to and follow on, follow through in our own life. What we believe about baptism at Westridge can be summarized in four very simple statements. And so I'll share those with you briefly, and then we'll be done. First, Baptism affirms that we believe God's promises. Colossians 2 explains God's promises this way. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. And then God made you alive in Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. When we're baptized... It is a personal affirmation of these central truths of the gospel. That God made a decision about you and me long before we were ever born. He made the decision that he would love us, that he'd forgive us of everything we have ever done or ever will do. And that forgiveness comes not because of anything we have done to earn that grace. We are promised Forgiveness simply because of what Jesus has done for us. Baptism is this once and for all statement that we believe and we're doing our best to follow Jesus' teaching. Second, baptism comes out of a personal decision to follow Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is delivering the, the inaugural message for the church on the day of Pentecost. It's the day the church was born. And as everyone gathered there in the temple courtyard, Peter made this statement. He said, every one of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that Bible tells us that on that day alone, 
more than 3,000 individuals were baptized at the start of the church. If you trace the history of baptism all the way through the New Testament, you'll find this same pattern every time. An individual learns the truth or a group of people learn the truth about Jesus and they choose to follow him. They repent, they leave their old beliefs and their lifestyle behind, and based on the example in the Bible, what we believe at Westridge is that baptism logically and naturally follows that personal decision and commitment. To be completely honest and transparent, that's why we don't practice infant baptism here. We believe, based on the Bible, that a child needs to reach a point in their life where they understand and can make a personal decision, a life-changing commitment to Jesus. doesn't happen at a set age. I was baptized when I was seven years old, and I remember it vividly. I've also baptized people that are in their 80s. It's not at a certain age. It's just the personal ability to make that decision. Now, that particular conversation raises questions for other people. I often have people ask me, so what if I was baptized as an infant? I think what your parents did for you is a beautiful thing. They made a commitment to raise you in a Christian home, according to God's teaching, with a hope that you would one day make a decision of your own to follow Jesus. And that's a huge blessing. It doesn't mean that they did something wrong. Now, admittedly, we have a different theological perspective than other faith traditions. And we're not saying we're the only ones that are right. But what we are saying is that our best understanding of Scripture is that God asks us to make our own choice, our own commitment to Jesus. And it's something he asks each one of us to do personally. Third statement, baptism is a public declaration of our personal faith. Baptism is this dramatic display of this epic story going on inside of us. And if you've ever been around for a baptism service here, you know that we baptize by immersing, by dunking people completely under the water. We do that because as best as we understand scriptures, that's the model that Jesus set up. That's what the word in Greek, baptizo, means. And the immersion most closely fits the imagery that scripture paints of what baptism is all about. Just like this passage in Romans 6 where Paul writes, Have you forgotten that when you were joined with Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and we were buried with Christ in baptism. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, we now also may live new lives. So when we're lowered into the water, it connects us. We identify with Jesus' death and burial. And it symbolizes for us how we're dying to our old way of life. When we're raised up out of the water, it identifies us with Jesus' resurrection and the new life that's in front of us. The fourth and final statement, I think, may be the most important. Baptism is not a condition of salvation. It's evidence of it. We're not baptized so that we can begin a relationship with Jesus. If that were true... That would mean we're doing something to earn our salvation, and that goes completely against the Scripture's teaching of grace. Also, <laughs> baptism is not this spiritual gotcha. 
It's not that one thing that if you don't do it before you die, you'll get to the pearly gates and you'll meet Jesus there and he'll go, "Mm, dude, you got it this close, right? You just weren't baptized, so you can't come in. You were this close. And that's what it felt like in the church I was raised in. Baptism is a celebration of God's grace that we have already received through faith in Jesus. We're baptized because we've made a commitment to follow Jesus. We get baptized as a simple, profound act of obedience. We go public. Another question I hear sometimes is this. I was a part of another faith tradition at another church where they sprinkled me. Should I get rebaptized? That's a lot of people ask that question. So here's what we believe at Westridge. If you understood why you were being baptized, and if it was a personal decision... And if you were baptized some other way than immersion, we don't feel like you need to be baptized again. I wouldn't get too hung up on how it was done. Yes, we immerse people. Yes, we dunk people. And if you feel like you need to do that and you've been sprinkled at another place, we'll dunk you. I promise we'll even raise you up out of the water. They're just going to hold you under. But the bottom line is, we are convinced that God is more concerned about the condition of your heart than he is the amount of water involved in your baptism. Our salvation comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it is by those acts we've been saved from our sin. And with baptism, we publicly declare that our old life is nailed to the cross with Jesus. And we come up out of the water with a new life in front of us. You know, I personally believe that every person should be baptized in addition to all that Scripture teaches about it. But I believe we should be baptized because we're going to have moments in our faith where we're tempted to believe that we haven't changed. We're still the old us, not the new us. We're going to have voices in our heads screaming at us, you're not good enough. You don't belong to Jesus. You're not loved. And there will be moments where we doubt if our faith is real and honest and sincere. In baptism, we have this beautiful, joy-filled moment where time stands still. And we step into the waters and we tangibly, we physically feel God's grace just wash over us. And though our sins may continue to pursue us, baptism gives us this milestone in our spiritual journey that we can always remember. Baptism becomes this single definitive act that constantly reminds us our sins have been drowned in the grace of Jesus. It reminds us that we have been renamed and reclaimed that we are, in fact, children of God. It reminds us that we are his sons and daughters, fully loved, fully forgiven. If you've never been baptized, I would encourage you to engage in this defiant act of protest against our old life and the voices that pursue us. Be baptized and tell the world Tell your heart that you belong to Jesus.